The title of this message is, Are You Sure? It's our question today. I like questions, and I have a bad habit that many of you have noticed in my life that I'll ask you five questions before you answer the first one. And that's, uh, anybody ever had that happen to you talking to me? Oh, yeah. yeah, I see a few hands. God bless you. I see those hands. Yeah, I I heard you, Pastor. So uh, that's, uh, (laughs) I have a lot of faults, and that's that's, that's a huge one in my life. But uh, here's the question or the answer. Sure or what? Here's the word sure defined by Webster's or American Heritage Dictionary. Sure, incapable of being doubted or disputed, completely true, certain. It's, it's an absolute. Not hesitating or wavering, stable, steady, firm, confident of some future possibility, certain in some expectation, bound to come about or to happen, inevitable, having one's course directed, destined, bound, worthy of being trusted or depended upon, reliable, free from harm or danger, safe and secure. Matthew 28 opens with these words. Early on Sunday morning, the two Marys came to the tomb of Jesus. And while they were there, they experienced an earthquake. They saw and spoke with an angel from heaven and found out that on this resurrection Sunday that death could not hold Christ, the grave could not keep him, that he had rose from the dead. And then Jesus told his disciples to meet him at a designated place, and there he gave them the great commission. The marching orders of the church If you want to know why we exist as a church, we exist to make disciples and teach them. But here is the words that Jesus gave us to to give the church a mission. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given complete authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. The next line. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Never doubt it. Jesus said it. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's certain. It's completely true. It's stable. It's steady. It's firm. It's confidence. Inevitable. It's destined. It's worthy of being trusted. Safe and secure. That's what Jesus' words are for us. Are you sure this morning? I pray that this morning as you set in this place that you are 100% sure that Jesus is always with you, that he never leaves you. And if you're not sure, we pray that you make that commitment this morning so you will know for sure. How is Jesus with us? Jesus was with the disciples physically until he ascended off the Mount of Olives into heaven. And then spiritually through the Holy Spirit, Acts 1-4. In one of these meetings, God bless you, in one of those meetings, he was eating a meal with them and he told them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you what he promised. Remember, I have told you about this before. And what did he promise? He promised that he wouldn't leave him alone, that he would send the Holy Spirit, that that he would pick up the slack, so to speak, and be Jesus' presence in our lives, and he would never leave, John 14, 26. But when the Father sends the counselor as my representative, and by the counselor I mean the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I myself have told you. Then on Pentecost, 50 days later after Easter, the promise came in full force, Acts 2, 1 through 4. The birth of the church. You know, I, I like that concept in, 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 in Genesis. We get this word picture that God took the clay from the ground, <coughs> excuse me, and formed Adam. And for some reason, I could see God bending down 
And Adam was laying there, a shapeless form, and he breathed eternal breath of God into his nostrils, and he, and he woke up. He became alive. And it was at that moment that the soul was created, an eternal soul that never dies. So this is the picture of God breathing eternal life into the nostrils of the church. On the day of Pentecost, seven weeks after Jesus' resurrection, the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm in the skies above them, and it filled the house where they were meeting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present would fill with the Holy Spirit and begin speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them ability. So today, Jesus continues to be with us through his Spirit. Be sure of this, Jesus said, I am with you always to the end, to the end of the church age, whether we're still alive, when the trump blows and Jesus takes his church, removes it from this earth, or on the day when God decides to stop your heart and take you home. He'll be with us all, all that time. And then in the next life as well. But are you sure that Jesus is always with us? I like examples from the scripture. The Bible is full of example, example after example of right, wrong, humanness. But through the pages of history, there are people who have followed Christ that kind of rose to the surface. And we, we, we look at them in awe because they were just regular people, but they allowed the spirit of God to work in their life in a mighty way. So I want, to, I want to mention a great man of God today, uh, a man whose life we can emulate and pattern in our own lives of faith. There stands a large Gothic Abbey church in the city of Westminster, London, England. Westminster Abbey is one of the most notable religious buildings in the United Kingdom and has been the traditional place of coronation and burial site for English and, the late, and later British monarchs. It was founded in the year 960. There are 270 people buried at Westminster Abbey. Here are some of those people buried there. Perhaps you might recognize some of them. Charles II of England, Geoffrey Chaucer, Charles Darwin, Charles Dickens, Edward I, III, and VI of England, George II of Great Britain, Henry III, V, VII of England, Rudyard Kipling, Mary I and II of England, Mary Queen of Scots, Sir Isaac Newton, Richard II of England, Alfred Lord Tennyson, William Wilberforce, who started the whole slavery movement to get it abolished. He abolished it in England. William III of England and 250 others. And then there's this great man of God's name. It's etched in stone there, David Livingston. David Livingston was born in Blantyre, Scotland, March 19th, 1813. He was raised in extreme poverty. It's hard for us in America as we see this world and we see our children and how we treat them and all the opportunities and the benefits they have in life. Livingston's parents were so poor that age 10, Age 10, mind you, he set to work in a factory. He was set to work. Now get this. He worked from 6 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night, every night at age 10. Then he went to school until 10 p.m. He found a way to read. Some as he worked, he, he would put his school books on this machine that he was running at the time. At 10 year old, it, it, it's hard for us to grasp that. But God had given him a great desire to learn, even though he had not accepted Christ yet. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All of us in our past from the day that we were conceived till we got to that point where the Holy Spirit was knocking and we let him in, God had his hand on us and we didn't, we didn't realize that. Now that's the way it was with Livingston. And one day he became convinced that it was his duty and highest privilege to accept of Christ's salvation for himself. 
He was 20 years old. He had many earnest thoughts about religion for years, but now did the great spiritual change occur in his words. This change was like what may be supposed would take place where it's possible to cure a case of colorblindness. The fullness with which the pardon of all our guilt is offered in God's book drew forth feelings of affectionate love to him who bought us with his blood, which in some small measure has influenced my conduct ever since. There's no doubt in Livingston's heart, it was very thoroughly penetrated by the new life in Christ. The Holy Spirit had come to dwell in the heart of David Livingston. He received God's call to Africa. In 1843, he opened a new mission statement in Mabatsa. It was here that he was mauled by a lion in his words, and I quote, The lion caught me by the shoulder, and we both came to the ground together, growling horribly. He shook me as a terrier dog does a rat. One of the natives shot the lion. Besides crunching the bones into splinters, 11 of his teeth had penetrated the upper part of Livingston's left arm, which being imperfectly set was maimed for life. I show some clips over and over, but this clip from Mountains on the Moon, it, it shows Sir Richard Burton, who with John Speaks was looking for the source of the Nile in Africa, and Livingston was back to speak in Scotland, and he, he runs into uh, Sir Richard Burton, and he comes in his office, and, and this is an amusing clip in a sense, but they start showing each other scars, and these are the scars that Livingston took for Christ. Let's watch. Dr. Livingston, may I present my good friend, Richard Francis Burton. I've just finished your book. I wonder if you gentlemen would leave us alone for a few minutes. Uh, There's much to discuss. We'll wait in the conference room. Got that in Africa, did you? Tribesman. The lands from my face. Split my palate. Knocked out some teeth. Come out over here. Risky profession we're in. Indeed. <laughs> you know, of course, that I was mauled by a lion. If it hadn't just fed, it would have eaten all of me. It was. He only chewed my shoulder. Bullet hole. Single ball. What about this? Sat on a scorpion. Squashed him dead, but his sting put this hole in my. Nearly killed me. Cellulitis. Swells the leg. Had to lance it myself. Drank some brandy that night. <laughs> Rat bite. That one? Ah, uh, that one. Nice and nasty. Yes, but you know, I can't think for the life of me. Africa. I do. Uh, 
The difference in those two gentlemen, David Livingston missed Africa because God had put that tremendous call upon his life and he couldn't escape it. Sir Richard Burton was wanting to find the source of the Nile. We have scars, many of us, some physical. But the deeper ones are spiritual scars upon our hearts. Over 35 years of ministry, I think about that and what leaves the most are folks that give their heart to Christ and get real hot. And you look at them and you see Jesus in them and you're thinking, man, God's got big plans for this person. And somewhere down the road, it, who knows what happens? It cools off a little. The old nature's voice becomes much louder than the Holy Spirit's voice. And they start drifting back into their old ways. They start drifting back into the world that they left behind. And you know what the tragedy is? Sometimes that old life swallows them up. You don't see them at church anymore. And when you see them on the street, you know what? We got busy and that's a tragedy to me. Maybe you're somewhere in that valley of indecision this morning that God is not as strong as he was in your life. Or maybe God's not even in your life. We can come here Sunday after Sunday and we can put our money in those offering baskets and we can smile and love and hug each other. But only God knows your heart, my friends. And if you're here this morning and you've never stepped over that threshold, if you've never accepted Christ, God knows that. And that's a dangerous place to be. It's just my thoughts this morning. When I think about scars from ministry, it's, it's, it's the sadness in me that, that people <laughs> started following that path and then decided, you know what, God? I think I will. I see your path, and I know that the, your blessings are on that path, but, but it's awful narrow, and I like this wide path. This is my path, so... I love, I, you know, God, just, just don't, don't bother me. I, I'm going to go down, go down this road. I'm telling you, people, that's a dangerous place to be. I can't make it any more clear. When you start walking away from God, it's just, it's, it's just a miserable road, actually. But you know what? When God stops this heart, and I see the face of Christ, all the scars will be gone. It won't matter. And I'll look and I'll see the scars in his hands and his feet that he did that so I could leave all this behind and, and live in glory. But you know what? I'll be looking for you. <laughs> I'll be looking for all of you. And the tragedy will come if you're not there. That's the point. So uh, I, I have said this for a few weeks, but I, you look around, you see people that you haven't, and you see empty chairs, send them a text or something. Just tell them you miss them. Just tell them you miss them. First years in Africa, Livingston had his beloved wife Mary and his kids with him. 
a family unit. Nothing like it. So I say to you young parents, enjoy your kids. Enjoy them while you have them there because just like that, they grow up and, and they're gone. They're still your kids, but it's never the same. But the Spirit of God was guiding Livingston to move on. The great unevangelized interior of Africa beckoned him on with an irresistible power, and he dared not disobey what is beyond all doubt the call of God, and there is a ring to that for us, that you and I dare not disobey beyond all doubt the call of God on your life, because you are all called. But this involves separation from his family. He dared not take them into that perilous fever country while he again seeked to, to find a site for a new mission station. Neither can he leave them alone among the natives for fear of disastrous influence upon his children. So there's nothing for him to do. He sends his wife and his children back to England, hoping to rejoin him at the end of two years. And so they turned their backs from Columbong with their home. Sorrowfully, must have, they must have looked for the last time upon their African home. More sorrowful still that neither of them, any of them realized at that time that this is the last time that they and a family would be living together on this earth. Mary would come back and go back and forth, but they put their children in a boarding school. In January 1862, Mary was once more at the Livingston side after an absence of four years. They hadn't seen each other for four years. Three months, she was dead. After an illness of a few days only, her spirit passed away, and the man who had faced calmly so many deaths and braved so many dangers knelt by her deathbed, utterly broken down and weeping like a child. On his last birthday, March 19, 1873, he made the following entry in his journal. Thanks to the almighty preserver of men for sparing me thus far on the journey of life. <clears throat> Can I hope for ultimate success? So many obstacles have arisen. Let not Satan prevail over me, oh, my good Lord Jesus. A few days later, nothing earthly will make, one make me give up my work in despair. I encourage myself in the Lord my God and go forward. April 29th was the last day of this great explorer, the great man of God's travels upon this earth. He had to be carried everywhere he went. He was laid on a crude bed. And at four in the morning, the, the young man that was watching by his tent crawled out in alarm for one of the old servants, fearing that their master was dead. By the light of the candle still burning, they saw him kneeling by his bedside, as if in the act of prayer. He had head, his head buried in his hands on the pillow, praying as he went. He had gone on his last journey, and without a single attendant, alone yet not alone, for he who had sustained him through so many trials and dangers had gone with him through the swelling of Jordan and brought him safe to the celestial country. The 18th of April, 1874, the remains of the great missionary traveler were committed to their last resting place, Westminster Abbey. But his heart literally remains in Africa. When David Livingston, the missionary doctor, died, the Africans removed his heart and buried it in a land that he loved. And that's where, he's buried. That's where his heart's buried right now. David Livingston was sure that God was always with him. And when he died, they found him, as I said, praying by his bed. His Bible opened to Matthew 28, verse 20, and he'd made this notation beside it, the word of a gentleman. He could have easily lived in Scotland with his family, 
what kept him in Africa. His arm was paralyzed from a lion attack. He'd suffered 27 bouts with jungle fever and was exhausted from battling slave traders. Addressing the University of Glasgow, Livingston said this, and I quote, What sustained me amidst the trials, hardships, and loneliness of my exiled life was the promise of a gentleman of the most sacred honor. It was this promise, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. People talk about the sacrifices I've made, but it can, can it be called a sacrifice when it's simply paying back a small part of a great debt that I owe God? A payment that brings peace of mind and the hope of a glorious destiny. It is emphatically no sacrifice. It is a privilege. A man wept openly at his funeral. A friend asked if he'd known Livingston personally, and he replied, I weep not for Livingston, but for myself. He lived and died for something. I have lived for nothing. End of quote. Livingston's motto was this. I place no value on anything I have except in its relationship to the kingdom of God. Can you say that this morning? I place no value on anything I have except in its relationship to the kingdom of God. Matthew 28, 20. Jesus promised to us today, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he's saying these words to you and I on June 12, 2016, same as he did to Livingston. Jesus said, I am with you always. Not that not I will be with you, but I am. He was saying that I'm never going to leave you. My body will ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives, and I will send the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you. My spirit is with you, John 16, 7. The Comforter will abide with you. I am with you, not against you. With you to take your part, to be on your side. I am with you. I am not absent from you, not at a distance. I am a very present help. 46, 1 Psalm. God is our refuge and strength always ready to help in times of trouble. Christ was now sending them out to build his kingdom in this world as he does us. That is our function as followers of Christ. We are here to build the kingdom of God. That is, that's, what we're, that's what we're about. And he promised that in that whole thing of 24-7, every day he'd be with him to carry them through the difficult times they were likely to meet with. I am with you to bear you up, to plead your cause with, all, with you in all your services and all your sufferings, to succeed this great undertaking. Lo, I am with you always, to make your ministry successful until the end of the world. Constant presence. I will be with you on Saturdays. I'll be with you on Sundays. I'll be with you every day of the week. Fair days and foul days, winter days and summer days. And that's what he was saying, that he was going to be with us until he comes and gets us or he takes us out of here. He says, you will have my perpetual presence even to the end of the world. Are you, my friends, this morning confident that Jesus is with you 24-7? You rely on him in your daily lives. Do you consult him in your decisions you allow him to filter all you say and do? Boy, wouldn't it be something if we could all say this with all confidence this morning. I place no value on anything I have except in its relationship to the kingdom of God. He was a great example. Jesus Christ 
was his life. And I ask you this morning, people whom I love, I pray that Jesus Christ is in your heart as well. Jesus asked us to get in the boat. It's, it's my favorite description of coming to Christ. We are on the dock of life, and he pulls up beside and holds out his hands and wants you to get in the boat with him. To do that, we confess and we repent, and we admit that we're sinners, and we need him in our lives, and we ask him to be our Lord and our Savior. It's a different life in the boat with Jesus than it is on the dock. In the boat, there shouldn't be any fear. There's so much fear in this world today. When you get in the boat with Christ, what is there to fear? Jesus told us the only thing to fear, he said, fear him who has the power to cast your soul into hell. That's, we should fear God. And in that, it should, it should uh, have a meaning or a, a, a way that we live, actually. And I'll tell you something else that it's, it's not so strong in the boat is insecurity. Because when you're in the boat with Christ, he's at the helm. He's guiding the ship. You're not. He is. So the insecurity that sometimes we feel shouldn't be there, and there shouldn't be a lot of worries because we put our trust into Christ. We put all that we are into him as we get in this boat. And all the things that keep us from being all we can be in Christ as we sail the ocean of life with him. We, got to, we have to give them to Christ. I, I pray this morning that you are all followers of Christ. If a meteor hit us this afternoon, wiped the whole United States off the face of the map, that we'd be continuing on in heaven. That's my prayer. I hope that we are all in that boat with Christ. And if you're not, we give you the opportunity. We want to show you how. We have people here that are up here that love you, that want to pray with you and pray for you. We, we, we talk about laying our burdens down at this altar, um, and we give you that opportunity. to. to uh, it's, a, it's a symbolic gesture that we come up, we kneel, we give it to Christ, and then we leave in peace. So keep that in mind as we, as we sing this last song this morning.